0: It is a delight to be here in the house of the Lord. And I don't, I don't say that um, just tongue-in-cheek this particular week. It's been a rough week for, for me. Um, I have spent the last nine days suffering through uh, the flu and um, strep throat. So combined, uh, those two things. I, last night was the first night I had a full meal since last Sunday. I've lost 10 pounds uh, what a great way to get your summer bod on, right? Um, and so it is, uh, like, there, there were moments like, I don't know if I'm going to make it to Sunday. Uh, but the Lord has been faithful. The prayers of the saints have been tremendous. The meds have worked. And um, and so uh, it, is, it is truly a joy to be here. I've been tough preparing for a message in the midst of all of that. But I'm just so grateful for the lesson that we get to to learn here today, so we're going to be in Genesis chapter twelve. We're going to continue on in the story of Abraham, which is our summer series, and we're going to be rolling through Abraham for for many weeks, all the way till early September. September third, I think, will be our last sermon on Abraham. And uh, Jamie graciously introduced us to Abraham and the text uh, last week. And so, a couple things that that we learned about Abraham just by way of review is that God called him out of the land of Ur of the Chaldeans and he went up to the land of Haran and, and there he meets with Abram and he says, uh, hey, I, I, I'm, I'm calling you to a different purpose. And, he's gonna, and he established a covenant with Abraham and he says, I'm going to give you this land. I'm gonna make you into a great nation and I'm gonna bless you. And those that bless you, I'll bless them. And those who dishonor you, I will curse you. So he's, we kind of say it uh, conveniently this way, that God promised him land, a seed, uh, in terms of children to be the father of many nations, and blessing. Land, seed, and blessing. And it, and it worked. I mean, that's why we're talking about Abe Today. Uh, is that his name is great. And as Jamie uh, made the statement, I'd I'd never really thought about this before, but he might be the greatest person in our Bible behind Christ in terms of uh, impact and being the father of our faith and Lord initiating so much through the Abrahamic covenant. And so we're going to see now, though, immediately on the heels of that calling and that covenant that God is going to test Abraham's faith. And Abraham's going to fail this test because of his fears. His fears are going to be, over his circumstances, are going to be stronger than his fears of God. And so he's going to fall. So this land and the seed and this blessing, we'll see it in the narrative that God has promised him he is going to put into immediate jeopardy all three of those things. And if it had not been for the faithfulness of God. If it hadn't been for God intervening, and we have this, the tagline here behind me, the faith of a man and the faithfulness of his God. If it had not been for the faithfulness of God, things could have imploded right from the beginning. And so if you are able, please stand for the reading of God's Word. We're going to read Genesis chapter 12, verses 10 through 20. The Word of God reads this way. Now there was a famine in the land. So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a beautiful woman in appearance. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you. And that my life may be spared for your sake. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abram. And he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here's your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. This is the word of God for the people of God, and all God's people said, Praise be to God. You may be seated. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the life of Abraham. Uh, We thank you for the lessons that we get to learn from him, both from a positive point of view, when he follows you and listens and fears you, and and also negatively, when we get to learn what not to do, Lord. um, We're thankful for your your faithfulness, your steadfastness in the midst of his sin, in the midst of our sin, that those whom you've called, um, you keep and your promises are sure, and you remain faithful and steadfast to us. And so we thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you for your love. Um, and Lord, I just ask that you help us under, better understand fear today and how our fears limit our ability to trust you and obey you and follow you. And so, Lord, um, you must increase and I must decrease, and may the gospel be prevalent here today. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So the first thing we notice in verse 10 is that there's a a famine in the land, and uh, it's mentioned twice. It says it's a severe famine, and so this is important. This is an immediate reminder of Genesis 3 and the curse of sin, where God uh, placed a curse because of sin on the earth. And so famines shouldn't exist that one of the mandates when God said, fill the earth and multiply there in the Garden of Eden was not just a procreation mandate, but to, to fill and, and, and multiply the garden to the earth, to the ends of the earth that they were going to create and cultivate. And so there was going to be an abundance of food and, and fruitfulness. And, and so, but then the sin, uh, the curse of sin entered in and now we have natural disasters. And so things like famines exist, um, and so we just need to know that everything is messed up. Everything is messed up, not just our hearts, but even nature. But this famine is also temporary, and uh, God did not call Abram to a dry and dusty land. In fact, he called him to a, a land of milk and honey. So the last thing we read in chapter uh, 12 before this passage is that he had journeyed toward the Negev. Now this is a region of Israel that's in southern Israel, and it's just above the town of Kadesh Barnea. And if you remember, if you're familiar with your Bible, this is the same area that later in the scriptures, uh, they're going to send out the 12 spies. This is after the Exodus and And Joshua and Caleb were part of the 12 spies, and they journeyed to Kadesh Barnea, and they said, we need to go check out the land before God gives us the promised land. You read about this in Numbers 13. He's in the same spot. And those spies, when they head up into the Negev, they said, oh my goodness, it is indeed a land flowing with milk and honey. And the visual image they come back, it said they cut a cluster of grapes. The cluster of grapes was so big that they put it on a pole and two men carried it. So this is not a desert land uh, all the time. This is a temporary famine. God didn't call him to a spot of, of, of misery on planet Earth. So, but why was this famine here? Well, in God's sovereignty, he has caused this famine to happen, I think, to test Abraham's faith. And so, God's sovereignty is uh, ever-present in our lives. And it begs the question that if God can test Abraham's faith, the father of our faith, does does he often test our faith? Can we see ourselves a little bit in this uh, narrative in, in our own lives? Are there moments where God tests us? And the answer is absolutely yes. The scriptures testify that God tests our faith. So let's listen. Let me read you a few scriptures here. James, if you're taking notes, just write these down. James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. God is in the same business of testing our faith today. Listen to this. It says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials or tests of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness or endurance. And let endurance or steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And so there's an element of our walk with the Lord where we are going to experience uh, extreme circumstances. And, and they don't always have to be extreme, but we're going to face difficulties and trials in our lives that exist to test our faith. And the point of this testing, and one of the points is for our own endurance, for our own sanctification. So let's listen to 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 through 7. It says, In this you rejoice. The this is being born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So in this, you rejoice. It says, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Two purposes God has in testing our faith. One, our sanctification, specifically in producing endurance. Because this life is hard and our faith walk sometimes is difficult and challenging. But then, secondly, it's for the praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The testing of our faith is for gospel proclamation. So when you face tough things in life, you need to ask yourself, Lord, what are you teaching me here? How are you growing me in this situation? See, God doesn't owe Abraham anything, and God doesn't owe you anything. The prosperity gospel says that you are good enough and that God owes you blessings as you are obedient to him. The reverse of that says that when you're not obedient to him, God is going to punish you. But that's not what grace is. It's not what the gospel of the Bible is. And so you just need to know that when you face difficult trials, it's not God punishing you. It's not God looking down and frowning upon you. He sees Christ in you. But it is possible that God is testing you. Now, it's also possible that it's just natural consequences to your own sin or the sin of others but you can still learn something even in those moments. And so here, God is testing Abraham's faith in order to grow and mature him, in order to help him get over himself and learn how to fear God. So this famine hits. And what does Abraham do? Abe immediately comes up with a plan. I think his fears set in. It doesn't say it in this text, but we'll hopefully look and see that uh, he is afraid as we look at another text in a minute. But Abe's fears cause him to make a plan B. And he leaves the land God has promised him. So this is where he puts the first part of this calling and covenant in jeopardy, that God has called him to this land. The famine occurs, he's afraid, and he leaves the land. Just leaves. Now what did he not do? What did he not do? He didn't inquire from the Lord. He, he, he trusted in his own wisdom and in his own understanding because he allowed his fears to take over. So point number one here on fear, we're gonna talk about this narrative and about fear and how it jeopardizes and limits Abe. And then in the back end, we're gonna, we're gonna look at some biblical ways we ourselves can combat fear. But point number one is that fear leads to impulsive decision-making and extreme emotions. Has that ever happened to you? In your fear, you've made an impulsive decision without seeking the wisdom of the Lord, and it's based on extreme emotions? My goodness, I know I've done this. I've been guilty of this. It's difficult. It's just to remain calm and listen to the Lord. And so but we need to have compassion on Abram here. He's a bit of a new believer. Um, He hasn't been walking with God long. Um, He's he's learning, and he's responsible for everyone that's with him. His wife, Lot, he's got servants, and and he's got livestock, and and so the the famine jeopardizes his future. And so we need to have a little compassion, but he fails to seek the wisdom of the Lord. He could have said, something like this, Lord, you, you brought me here and now there's a famine. Um, I need your help. What should I do? How do you want me to proceed? Can you make it rain? I'm putting my trust in you, God. But we don't see that. And God could have made manna. He could have sent the manna like he did in the wilderness later in the scriptures. He could have made it right. He could have said, hey, I need you to go down to Egypt. Don't worry, I've got a plan for you down there. See, it's not so much that he went to Egypt. It's that he didn't seek the Lord's wisdom in the midst of his fears. And so the Lord said, hey, I could, I need you to go down to Egypt to be a blessing down there. There's provisions down there, but we don't know because he didn't ask. And perhaps you may be thinking, well, maybe he didn't know to ask. Maybe, maybe Abe is so young in his faith, he didn't even know yet to, to inquire of the Lord. Well, if we back up and we read verses um, 7 and 8 in chapter 12, we know this isn't true. We know that he knows how to ask. In verse 7, it says, Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. This land, Lord, Abram, right here that's got the famine in it, I'm going to give it to your offspring, which you don't even have yet. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. He's already built an altar to the Lord in the land, and the Lord has appeared to him and had a conversation. He knows how to, to talk to God. If we continue on, it says, from there he moved to the hill country Uh, On the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel and west on the west and I on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. He knows how to converse with the Lord. He knows how to rely on him. He has met with him in person. The Lord has appeared to him. And yet, when the famine hits, he trusts in his own understanding, instead of responding and asking the Lord for wisdom. Let's continue on in the story. And by the way, do you know how to ask the Lord for wisdom? Yes, we do. We do. We know how to do it through prayer. How often do we do that? Well, not as much as we should. I know I'm guilty. I bet you are too. So let's continue. So Abraham, um, verse 11 it says, when he was about to enter Egypt, now this is a 300-mile journey. We're not talking about a small decision here to go down to Egypt. And Egypt was, uh, had the Nile River Valley. It rarely uh, was a victim of famine. And so, and this is obviously not the last time that, that the nation of Israel is going to flee to Egypt uh, because of a famine. We're going to see that. Uh, you see that later in, in Jacob's life. But uh, this is a 300-mile journey on foot with horses and camels and different things. Probably not horses, but they had camels and donkeys and goats and all kinds of stuff and family. This took a while, and it took time. And as he's getting closer and closer, Abe's fears deepen. And as he's going, he looks at his wife, and he starts off pretty good here. He says, hey, when the Egyptians see you, uh, he says, I know you're a beautiful wife. I know you're a beautiful woman. That's a great way to start. How often do you compliment your wife on her beauty, fellas? Now, we can take a lesson from Abraham here that we need to be a little bit more complimentary of our wives. Make them feel lovely. Tell them how much we think they are beautiful, okay? I got to do this more often in my own life. But then he says, and when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me. But they will let you live. Hey, you're so beautiful, the Egyptians are going to kill me in order to have you. You are an astonishing gals, right? She's 65 years old at this time. Now, I'm not going to step on any landmines here. I'm smarter than that. But let's talk about that for just a second. Because some people challenge that this text could even actually be appropriate. I mean, in our modern way of thinking, you know, like, are you kidding me? An entire nation, the king, the pharaoh of Egypt is going to find a 65-year-old woman so attractive that he's going to, you know, want her and the princes are going to find her attractive. Well, we have to remember that uh, she lived to be 127 years old. And so she's, according to that age range, people lived a little bit longer. She's she's middle-aged. She's, she's middle-aged, 35 to 45, somewhere in that range. And God has preserved her beauty. She hasn't had any children yet. And God has uh, preserved her beauty. And so, um, I stepped on a landmine, didn't I? <laughs> My wife's had two children. She's incredibly attractive. <laughs> anyway, all right, so... I don't know, okay, I don't know that she, why, but she's, she's stunningly beautiful, okay? Let's just take what the scriptures tell us and move on. <laughs> she's pretty, and uh, there's no real reason that I can come up with except that God says so, and so it happened. And she must have been, because the Egyptians did find her incredibly attractive, and, the, and Pharaoh took her to be his wife. Now, His plan, his fears deepen, and he says, you're beautiful, so we need to tell them that you're my sister. Why? Listen to his reasoning. So that it may go well with me, that my life may be spared. Point number two on fear, when you're afraid, Your fight or flight will put you in self preservation mode. Abraham is so afraid that he doesn't even care about the dignity and the sanctity and the purity of his wife. He is willing to offer her up. And thus, Put the future of this seed this that's going to happen, the future of his marriage in jeopardy by offering her up to Pharaoh. His fears lead to self-preservation. Our fears are a fight or flight uh, response based on real or perceived threats. Right here, they're perceived threats. And it becomes a self-focus. And so he's not concerned about Sarah only himself. He's willing to put her life and her dignity at risk. He is jeopardizing the future of his family. And Sarah is complicit. She's not innocent here. We don't even get a word from her, which means she just rolls with it. Now, question, did Abraham lie? Did he lie? Let's turn over to chapter 20. It's at this point in our, the sermon, that you need to know this is not the first time, or this is not the last time that Abram is going to do this. Abram's going to make himself famous for the My Wife is My Sister text. And uh, about a week and a half ago, Kenan texted me and he said, Hey, man, hey, how would you feel about preaching on June 11th? And I said, Hey, you know, whatever's good for the team. He goes, Well, it's not the easiest text. He goes, But it's not the hardest either. Uh, and uh, it's where Abraham lies about his wife being his sister. And every time I just think about it, the Lord puts you in my, on my mind and heart. And I'm reading between the lines here. And what he's really saying is, hey, who's good to preach on my wife as my sister? How about the guy from East Tennessee? <laughs> i the guy from East Tennessee? Yeah. So I, I know what he was thinking there. And that was a little jab at me from being from East Tennessee. And uh, I receive it in jest. It's love. So... Let's read these verses here. The question is Did Abraham lie? Genesis chapter 20, verses 10 through 12. He has encountered Abimelech, which back in the Negev. He's back in the land now. And um, Abram has encountered Abimelech. And again, the same thing. He's afraid that they're going to kill him. And so he's going to say, She is my sister. So, and Abimelech said to Abraham, What did you see that you did this thing? Abraham said, I did it because I thought there is no fear of God at all in this place. Let's stop right there. Who's the one who doesn't have any fear of God? It's Abram. He's so whacked up in his thinking and in his fears, he says, there's no fear of God in this place. I've got to take matters into my own hands. When in fact, the fear of God is not in him. He says, there's no fear of God at all in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother. And she became my wife. So did he lie? the answer is yes. Biblically considered, there's no such thing as a partial truth. And at this point, I need to confess something to you. Candace and I celebrated our 17-year anniversary yesterday. Uh, she spent the entire day in bed because now she has what I had. Um, so happy anniversary, honey. I love you. We will celebrate at a later date. And I need to tell you that I, I married my sister. Candace is my sister in Christ. She's my sister in Christ, okay? But you see, if I'd have stopped right there, that's technically not a lie, she is my sister in Christ, but it doesn't paint the full picture. It doesn't paint the full story. And so Abram lies. Now you may be sitting thinking to yourself, I never lie. I'm a truth teller, but I'm really good at artfully arranging statements that are true statements so that maybe the whole picture doesn't quite come into play here. That's deceit. That's Lying, we do this all the time in the business world. We do this all the time with family and friends. We just, oh, bless her heart, I don't want to hurt their feelings. Um, and, and you just need to know that if you're not telling the full truth and the whole truth, it's deceitful and it's sinful. And can I just encourage you, uh, you businessmen you, and women who are out there in, in the workforce, where there's pressures on you to stretch the truth? Don't do it. Operate with integrity. Jesus said, let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Proverbs 6 16 uh, through 18 says, There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him, haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. Lying should never be the mark of a follower of Christ. And even deceitful statements. So that's a little side sermonette. Abram Lies right here. He should have told the full truth despite the fact that she is his sister. Now listen, why did Abram marry his sister? Well, things were a little different back then. Um, in fact, we don't even get uh, incest as an abomination until Leviticus 18. And so there were provisions and ways that uh, people had to find why. I mean, there wasn't like hebrewdating.com back then. And, you know, so you just had to kind of take what you can get. There were less people on the earth. And so this is not a sin or something incestuous. It's not a, uh, and it's not a prescriptive, not justifying incest here either, that Abram did marry his half-sister. So just know the scriptures aren't doing that. All right, so let's get back on track here. So he lies. He puts the jeopardy of his uh, wife and the seed of the future of the faith Uh in jeopardy by allowing his wife to be taken into Pharaoh's house because of his fears. He's gone into self-preservation. So the Egyptians indeed thought she was beautiful. Pharaoh takes her, his wife, and as a bride price, which was pretty typical back then, he actually blesses Abram. And so Abram here, in his fears and in his deceit, ends up getting blessed. That's unclear... Um, Well, it's not unclear. What happens next is that God steps in. God steps in, and in his faithfulness, everything that Abram has put in jeopardy, he is now going to correct. So God steps in, In verse 17, let me get back to chapter 12 here, and it says, "'But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh in his house "'with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife.'" And Pharaoh called Abraham and says, what have you done? Why did you do this? Why didn't you tell me she's your wife? Why did you say she's your sister? And he's going to say, now get out of here. So God steps in. It's right here that his faithfulness shines through despite Abe's lack of faith and wickedness. So God sends plagues upon Pharaoh. This is a foreshadowing of the exodus that's going to occur later and these plagues are like skin boils. We don't know. What's unclear is how Pharaoh knew that the punishment that God was sending upon him was because of Sarah. We just don't know. In chapter 20 with Abimelech, God intervenes and speaks to Abimelech. And perhaps that happened here. We just don't know. But it says, so why would Pharaoh, if he didn't do anything wrong, if he didn't know, why would God curse him? Well, remember, God has promised that he will bless those who bless Abram and those who dishonor him, he will curse. There's nothing more dishonoring than taking a man's wife into your possession. And so God has to honor his word. His faithfulness to his word happens here and he curses and sends plagues upon Pharaoh. And so here's where Abe failed at his third point of calling, land, seed, and blessing. Instead of Abe... Going down to Egypt and being a blessing to a foreign nation, he has now punted in his own fear that responsibility as well, and Pharaoh has been cursed. He can't even follow some simple instructions because his fears are so strong. So, Pharaoh uh, sends him out and he actually escorts him out of Egypt, and that's the end of the narrative. And so there are two lessons here that we need to learn from Abe. We're going to go through these two lessons pretty quick. And then we're going to go through four things on fear that we can do biblically to combat fear. The two lessons. One, God is testing and maturing Abraham. He is testing and maturing Abe. And he's doing the same thing to us each and every day in our daily lives and in our daily circumstances. And God is preparing him for a much more difficult test that he doesn't know is coming in Genesis chapter 22. The test will be that Abe finally has a son named Isaac. And the test is going to be that God is going to ask him to sacrifice his own son, Isaac, and Abe is going to pass that test with flying colors. And listen what has finally happened to Abe whenever that occurs. It says, but the ancient, and so Abe has got Isaac, he's laid him on the altar in the wood, and Isaac's asked him, hey, where's the ram? And he says, God's gonna provide. And he's got the knife in his hand, and he's about to come down on Isaac's throat. And the angel—it says—been in verse eleven. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, "Abraham, Abraham!" And he said, "Here I am." He said, "Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me." God is testing and building Abraham's faith so that he will learn to trust God and to fear. God and not fear his circumstances. And so that's happening to us. He is testing us with the various trials. The second lesson we must learn is that we have to fear God more than our circumstances. We have to fear God more than our circumstances. And only then can we truly walk in obedience. Proverbs 1.7 says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. God's testing us so that we might fear him and walk in obedience. So fear, let's talk about this for just a second. Four things on fear. Because we have to learn how to recognize it. We have to learn how to combat it. Fear is a God-given emotion. Fear can be a good thing when a burglar hits, comes into your house or you get attacked by a bear and you fight or flight, that's good, okay? That's called fear, but it's a good emotion. Fear of the Lord is a good thing. Number one, when we are afraid, when circumstances in our life cause us to be fearful, we need to seek God's wisdom. We need to seek God's wisdom. This is what Abe failed to do. James 1.5 says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. Ask God for wisdom. When you're afraid, pause. Hit the pause button. Go into prayer. Go into your prayer closet. Whatever you got to do and ask the Lord for wisdom. Philippians 4 says, Six through seven are some of my favorite verses on this. It says, do not be anxious about anything. Anxiety, which is rampant in our culture, is a manifestation of fear. Are you suffering with anxiety? Find out what you're afraid of. When you find out what you're afraid of, do this. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace... Of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. The man that discipled me, uh, the first man to ever disciple me, walked me through this process that he and his wife go through. He says, Wes, when uh, his wife's name is Renee, he says, Renee and I are making decisions and we're fearful. We stop and we surrender it all to the Lord and we pray for peace. Peace. It's the opposite of fear. And if you don't know the Prince of Peace, then you live in a fearful estate. But we have to stop and pray for peace. And can I tell you that Candace and I have implemented these verses in all of our major life decisions and even minor ones. When we pause and we, in unity, surrender everything that we've thought about, about whatever the situation is, you can use your mind. It's okay to use your mind. You don't have to just blindly surrender everything to the Lord. You can think through the pros and cons of your situation, but then you surrender to God and say, we're not going to worry about this, Lord. And you've got to give us peace about the direction to go. It has never, ever failed us. When we have prayed for peace, our fears have diminished. And we have to wait till there's unity in that peace. If you're a married couple, if you're a single person, then you just have to wait for the, the, the peace in your own heart. So, number one, when you're fearful and your circumstances uh, jeopardize your faith, you need to seek God and seek His wisdom. Number two, seek God's word. You've heard this before, Kenan's mentioned it. We have 365 do not fear, fear not, worry not verses in your Bible. And so, what, what, what most of us fail to do in our fear is to stop and go read what's going on in God's Word to understand what He's already told us. We may be afraid of things that, are, that He's already explained in the Bible. We may be afraid that He's not going to be faithful to us, and yet we can read stories like this and know that despite whatever's happening, it says God's going to be faithful. And so we must learn how to go to God's Word, 2 Timothy 3.16, In 17, it says, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching. It's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. You see the connection there between God's word and being equipped for every good work, the thing that God has probably called you to do, but it's the thing that you're maybe afraid of the most? And so when we're afraid, we've got to seek his wisdom. But then we also need to go straight into his word and find counsel there. Psalm 119 uh, just has some beautiful verses about God's word. It says, forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. Your faithfulness endures to all generations. We can learn everything we need to know about God's faithfulness right here. And that helps us fight fear. It says, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. If You're afraid about the decision to make in life. Here's the lamp. Here's the light to your path. Seek his wisdom. Get into his word. And it says in verse 165 of Psalm 119, great peace have those who love your law. Nothing can make them stumble. When you're afraid to do what God has called you to do, seek his wisdom, seek his word. Number three, seek wise counsel. Proverbs twelve fifteen says, the way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice. Now, you've got friends in your life that you know that if you go, uh, if you want to hear what you want to hear, you know who those friends are. They'll tell you what you want to hear. But this is not the type of friends you need. You need friends that will tell you the truth. This is why discipleship is so important. And maybe it's family. Maybe you've got a father-in-law or a father or mother that gives good, wise counsel. But I would encourage you to find an older uh, man or woman in the faith who can give you wise counsel. Peers that can speak life into you. We've got to seek wise counsel. See, Abe didn't do that either. He didn't inquire. We don't don't see him asking uh, Sarah or even Lot, hey, what, what, what do you think we should do here? But when we seek wise counsel, sometimes it's the exact counsel that we need to face our fears. Number four, we need to take action to overcome our fears and trust God. See, none of this makes any difference if we don't step into action. Whatever God lays on your heart, whatever you're afraid of, if you don't take the next step of action, then it doesn't really matter. You haven't walked in obedience. Jamie said that um, faith is the tangible expression of trust last week. I loved that. That if you want to display your faithfulness, it requires action. John 1 2 4 says, Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. So what is it that you're afraid of? What is it that God has called you to do? Remember, God called Abraham to be a blessing, to be the father of many nations, to have and possess this land. And now he's afraid and he's not walking in that calling. What about you? What has God called you to do and to be? But you're too afraid to do it. One, one of the things that we're afraid of oftentimes is financial security. That's a common one that we hear here. Have you truly surrendered that to the Lord? Are you walking in obedience in that portion of your life? Or do you hold on to it in your fears? Have you, do you graciously and generously and joyfully give back to the kingdom? It doesn't have to be here at Harvest Church, it could be to something. What about your children? Moms, dads, are you afraid to surrender control of your children to the Lord? How often do we hover? How often do we control? How often do we try to order everything so that uh, our kids are, are fine and protected? And I'm not suggesting you be flippant with your parenting, but have you surrendered your children and just let go to the Lord? What else are you afraid of in your life? Are you afraid to pray out loud? Are you afraid to pray at a business lunch? Are you afraid to pray at a restaurant with your family, hold hands, and pray out loud in public? God's called us to do these things. So whatever it is in your life, you you probably know what it is. This is how you fight this fear, but you've got to take the first step. You've got to take action. If not, you're not walking in obedience. Uh, a couple weeks ago, is probably where I got sick, is uh, my family and I, we went to Disney and, and Universal Studios, we've been saving for like five years. Um, and we finally did it. We finally took the plunge and went down there. Now, my son has been deathly afraid of roller coasters for several years now, he's nine years old. And uh, <laughs> there's some pretty fast roller coasters at, at Disney. And he, he's always just kind of ridden, if we've gone to Dollywood, just kind of the kiddie coasters, and. but he's not getting on a big roller coaster. Well, we kind of made a pact uh, between me and Candace and Ava that before we went down there, we just weren't going to tell him anything about the ride. We were just going to get in the line, and he's going to get strapped in, and here we go. But well, we kind of made an agreement, look, if Luke's ever going to get over this, he's going to have to get on the roller coaster, and he's going to love it. So we get to Disney and and it's about day four and and he's kind of overcome his his fears, but we hadn't been on anything just real extreme yet until we get in line for the Tron light cycle run. Now, let me just tell you about this roller coaster. This is the craziest thing, one of the craziest things I've ever been on. First of all, you strap in differently than anything I've ever been on a roller coaster. And I love roller coasters. You, you mount at something that's kind of like a crotch rocket, and your legs get synced in, and you're strapped in on your thighs and around your calves, and your feet have got to be forward, and then you lean forward, and you have to grab these handlebars, and you pull these handlebars, and this thing comes behind you and goes skunk onto your back. And now you're like this. Okay, on the Tron light cycle run. The back kind of does this, it doesn't lift up, but you can at least raise up. And I'm sitting here thinking, and I'm looking over here at Luke and he's strapped in. He was barely, he was, you had to be 51 inches to ride this ride, he was 52. And he could barely like, he's pulling these things back and he's looking at me and he gets cinched into that thing. And then you, you take off for a little bit and you get set. And it says, welcome to the Tron light cycle run. I'm kind of looking over at him, but he's looking at me. He's kind of wild-eyed or whatever, and the lights are going, and boom, it launches you into 60 miles an hour in about two seconds. And I've got a photo of what our faces were, and I want to show you this photo Here's the difference. Everyone's afraid of a roller coaster at some point in their life. The difference between me and my son is I know that this roller coaster is safe, even though I haven't been on it. I've been on it enough. I've tested roller coasters time and time again to where I know that I can trust them and I can trust Disney and I can just throw my hands forward. And it's the closest thing I've ever felt to flying in my entire life. That's the mark of a mature Christian. That you learn how to overcome your fears by stepping into what God has called us to be. But notice my son's face. (laughs) The wind is blowing his hair back. I got permission to share this from him, by the way. That's intense. He's afraid. But he's on the roller coaster. God knows you are afraid in life. He sympathizes with your fears, but he wants you to move forward anyway. See, trusting God is not the absence of fear. It's moving forward in the face of our fears and saying, "I." fear you the most, God. These circumstances are not going to dominate my life. Amen? Don't let fear limit you from being what God has called you to be. Don't let fear grip, grip just, just implode us. Think about Christ. What did His face look like As he was headed to the cross, Luke 22 says that he was praying in so much agony that drops of blood came out of his face. And yet he moved forward. He moved forward. What did his face look like when it was bleeding with the crown of Florence? But yet he moved forward. What did it look like when he was tired and exhausted and couldn't even carry his own cross after being whipped and beaten and spit on and his beard was pulled? And Yet he moved forward. What did his face look like when hanging on the cross he was thirsty and they gave him vinegar instead of water? And yet he moved forward. See, the greatest act of faith has been accomplished for us so that we don't have to be afraid of sin. We don't have to be afraid of death. We can trust in God's faithfulness. We can trust in his promises. And we can move forward as kingdom ambassadors. We don't have any reasons to fear but the enemy wants us living in fear. Let's not do that. We're going to move into a time of communion. And I want to invite you that if you have never, ever trusted Christ, if you've never placed your life into his hands, if you just feel like I'm living in fear and I don't know why, I don't have this peace that you Christians keep talking about, I'd love for you to come and talk uh, to me up front or we'll have ushers back here in the back walls ready to pray and let you receive Christ. Because if you've never experienced the peace of Jesus Christ, then today should be the day. When you take communion today, Go remember what Christ has done for you. Go remember what he did on the cross. And then a- and ask him, take a pause before you just dive into the, to the cracker and the juice and ask him, Lord, reveal to me what I'm afraid of. Reveal how that's limiting my ability to face forward and to follow you and trust you and surrender my life to you. I'm going to pray, and then the tables will be open. Heavenly Father, thank you for this story. Thank you for your great faithfulness to Abram, despite his sin, despite his plan B, despite him trying to fix everything instead of pausing and surrendering to your will. Lord, we do the same stuff. Lord, forgive us. Forgive us for not fearing you, more than our circumstances. Fear, forgive us when we just, we're not walking in the calling that you've given to us. So if we just ask for your assistance. We ask for your guidance. Ask for your Holy Spirit to convict us uh, so that we can be a blessing to those around us because you've blessed us with every blessing in the heavenly realms that is in Christ Jesus. Lord, thank you for your faithfulness. In Jesus' name, amen.